everyone, this is Viv and you're listening to the What Gives Podcast. Today I'm sitting with Robbie Atkinson, founder of the Foundation of Inner Ethnic Restoration, also known as FIRE. FIRE is an institution meant to address the racial tension in society and I've been learning so much about how racism, racial injustice, um, racial inequality undergirds so many societal issues, crises, and other injustices, um, all of them, in fact. So I am fascinated and excited to learn more from you, Robbie. Welcome. Thank you for having me as part of this this episode. It's an honor to be here and, and get to share insight about my organization and, and talk with this, this audience. So thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, Robbie, tell us about FIRE's mission and what inter-ethnic restoration means to y'all. FIRE's mission overall um, is to bring different communities together to address racial trauma um, and educate the public about racial literacy, raise awareness about that. And we strive to do that um, through inclusive conversations um, that create a we, we like to say a safe space. Sometimes we like to call it a brave space uh, to, to have these, these discussions about these subjects. And ultimately, sometimes we, we do this through, aside from regular discussion, trying to host events to um, bring people together and um, center some other aspect uh, alongside it to kind of ease the tension. So for example, you might have seen on our Instagram, social media, we talked about like art therapy. We, we talk about like, we pair things like art with, sometimes mental health issues or something that allows people to have a medium to express themselves as they're talking about these issues that tend to make people clam up. And so, yes, that's what our mission is. And what, what does inter-ethnic restoration look like? I would say there really is no clear picture in that there's no one set definition of like a utopian society, right? Um, Because this is an issue that will always be ongoing. It's something that has many layers to it, as I've said to some people before, but I envision uh, interethnic restoration as a state where there is less racism rampant. There's less structural racism. There's less um, interpersonal racism. Um, And even if that's peeling back those layers just a little bit at a time, getting people to understand how racism motivates the way they interact with other people and makes them pause before they say something so that they say the right thing so that they can ultimately be not the right thing, but be an ally to somebody and to a community in need, then we've achieved our goal. If we can get somebody to analyze and realize that they were traumatized by something and they carry the anger from that trauma or the pain from that trauma around with them, then we've accomplished our goal. Do you see what I'm saying? If we can open someone's eyes and make them realize or learn something that they didn't know before, we've accomplished our goal. And that is each of those goals is a step towards that inter-ethnic restoration. I see. And you have brought up racial trauma and interactions that stem from racial trauma. So I would love if you can explain what that is for those of us who who don't know. Mm. So racial trauma is, in essence, the PTSD that an individual can experience from an encounter with racism. And that can take the form of, um, for example, I I had a friend talk about how she took her mother to the hospital. Um, her mother went and had a surgery and this was a, a black friend uh, who brought her black mother with her to the hospital and they did the surgery. And after the surgery, her mother kept saying, um, I'm a little bit tired. I'm a little bit, I feel cold. I feel, you know, and the doctor said, mm, she's just being lazy. Don't let her be lazy. Make her get up and walk. 
And for hours, the mother kept saying, you know, I don't feel good. Something feels wrong. And they kept dismissing her and saying, oh, she's just being lazy because, you know, there's a stereotype that black people are lazy, right? Finally, her father felt that something really was wrong. So he stopped the doctors and he wouldn't let them leave the room until they took a look at her. It turns out she was bleeding internally for hours. For hours. And now imagine, now my friend, as she was talking about this experience, I remember it was late at night. We were sitting down. We had just left like a party and she was talking about how she just felt angry. She felt angry and she didn't know what to do with this anger. And she described this incident as uh, one of the sources of her anger. And she didn't know what to do with it. That to me is racial trauma when you carry that anger with you from those experiences because you feel like you were misunderstood, you felt that you were mistreated and the heart of the issue was not resolved. I've heard people talk about their experiences and they break down crying. Um, racial trauma can look like that kind of a, a strong response. It can look like anger or sorrow, but I, I heard a quote the other day that I think best embodies it. They said that racial, or no, they said trauma decontextualized looks like personality. And I, I think that a lot of people carry with them the experiences that they've had. And it's so normal to just sweep it under the rug and say, okay, just let it go. Or, oh no, it wasn't, it wasn't what you thought it was. They get racially gaslit into being quiet about it and they keep taking it and taking it. And that has health problems. That has mental health problems. That raises your blood pressure. That changes your heartbeat. That can trigger heart attacks. That There's a whole slew of physical and emotional effects from that trauma. And it takes many different forms. So... Yeah. And just listening to you talk about this story, I'm also reflecting all the ways in which I am the way that I am and how I move throughout society, avoiding certain scenarios. And a lot of it has to have come from being, you know, Asian in the society or reactions I have received for being Asian. Um, and I definitely have stories that relate to some something similar to that. So yeah, I, I I definitely identify and thank you for that definition of racial trauma. And I would love if you can talk to us about the things that we can do to help move this restoration along and you know, what can the listeners and what can the allies do? We try to host events. One of the major questions that I bear in mind as we try to address these issues is I think about how can we present our findings, our information to the public, and what can we present as an actionable takeaway for them to feel that they can contribute, for them to feel that they can participate and feel that they have taken away some information and they also have something that they can do. They can walk away from us and go and enact whatever we have told them and they can see that they're making a difference, right? Um, and for us, that it, part of that entails to bring about that change, entails attending our events, attending our workshops, um, and engaging in these conversations. Now, we are trying to lead the discourse. We're trying to lead these conversations. We're trying to start them. Um, we've brought on, for example, one of our one of our earlier fireside chats is what we call them, where we have live streams from our Instagram account. We have um, some kind of a mental health professional, someone with a background um, in sociology or psychology or even in medicine who um, kind of sheds light on the subject or the theme. And we talked about like racial gaslighting with Dr. Angelique Davis, and she's had her work featured in like Vogue, um, on like BBC. She's had her work featured in many different places. And we talked about what is racial gaslighting? Um, what does that look like? And how do people tend to respond? And what are some common things people say? And 
bringing up these questions and opening the, the floor for people who are watching the live stream to comment and ask questions and chime in. It gives us, it gives us almost like a classroom setting uh, for people to sit down and learn and listen in on this conversation and hear a perspective they never considered or even let themselves be heard um, and have someone analyze like what they say and say, yes, that actually is gaslighting and, and this is a, a mechanism because of defensiveness or denial or things like that. Um, participating in these conversations where we can really break down the constructs uh, between people and what happens. Uh, so that's that's one way. Um, we are in the process of trying to plan some event uh, event-based fundraisers. Um, recently we tried to plan a dance workshop and I, the inspiration behind, I know it sounds crazy, right? Like dance and racial trauma. How does that pair together? <laughs> um, I mean, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the, the interesting comment that was made in the past was people are going to kind of clam up when you talk about racial trauma. So how can we present this in a way that people want to lean in? And I mentioned taking an art-based perspective. Um, I looked at the concept of dance and how dance is an expression of a person and a person's lived experience. So my perspective was, okay, let's take the concept of dance. Let's ask choreographers to come up with a dance that embodies the emotions they felt when they experienced racial trauma or some kind of eye-opening experience. And then we invite people to come and learn that dance. And they have a moment where they sit down and talk about what inspired this, um, what their background is. And what actually happens is people who participate in the dance workshop end up embodying someone else's experience. And this is actually a play on empathy. This is literally a way to embody somebody else's lived experience. Um, and that is a major component of like all of the things that we talk about, aside from just empathy in general, is compassion, being moved to action so that you can be an ally, so that you can be understanding. Um, so that's factor number two uh, that we also try to do. Um, and then we're also doing other workshops and we're trying to do, a, um, we're trying to do a story exchange, which I have, we did one time before and it was incredibly powerful. Like people broke down crying. People started talking about some experiences. I mean, it was, it was heavy and it was emotional, but it was much needed work. Um, and really it's, it's, you have a prompt, you pair people up, you have them share their story in relation to the prompt. Then they bring, come back together and they tell their partner's story in first person and the emotional impact of telling someone else's story in the first person makes you put yourself in their shoes. Um, and so all of these, all of these events, all of these things that we've been doing are ways that people can kind of get involved and try to take something away from um, like what we're talking about. And if, if you participate in our event and you have a better understanding of empathy and you see someone one day experience something and you can tell it makes them uncomfortable, you can now feel a little more comfortable going up to them and saying, hey, I heard that exchange. That was really awkward. That was, that was, that was, you know, that was uncomfortable. Or you can immediately feel empowered enough to stand up and say, wait a second, that's wrong. Please don't do that. I don't think you realize that this is how this sounds. Um, and that is the goal is to do things that make people feel more educated and more empowered to speak up. Yeah, I think all of these sound amazing and expression is such a key part of just being human and just the outlets that you're able to provide for in all different facets, art, dance, storytelling. I think that's incredible. And what I'm hearing is there's also this education portion to all of your workshops. Um, and I know that y'all have a strong pillar in racial literacy. For those of us who don't know what racial literacy is, 
Can you explain what it is and why it's so important? Sure. So racial literacy is essentially the, I would say, the historical, social, emotional, and psychological awareness of other racial groups' personal experience that allows you to compassionately interact with them and ultimately be an anti-racist ally. Now, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. That is quite literally the definition that we have on our website, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> like straight from the website. But what does that look like? Um, that racial literacy is, um, like I said before, if you see someone going through an experience where you can tell that they're being targeted because of their race, you know how to jump in and you know how to stand up and say, that's wrong, don't do that. Because that is actually when we look at the heart of a lot of the racial tension and issues that we have here in America right now, some of that that is still around is a direct result of the fact that people look at someone else going through something and they say, oh, well, that that's not my business. That didn't happen to me. Or, you know, like, better you than me. And they kind of walk away. Or some people really just like, oh, that's sad. And then they unplug from it and they can immediately walk away. And it's nothing, right? Um, so that racial literacy of understanding how to interact with people, understanding why um, you should stand up, understanding... Why, when you have a black coworker come to your job, you don't gift them watermelon juice on their first day, especially if you know the history behind how watermelon was used as a demeaning image for the black community, or um, understanding that you don't gift your Asian coworker chopsticks when they arrive at work just because they're Asian. I mean, do you see what I'm saying? Uh, like, it's this understanding of how to navigate the social space with other communities, and it may seem like common sense. A lot of people say, well, no, you shouldn't do that. Common sense is not so common. It, it, for lack of a better word, I should say, there are some people who live their whole life not having to interact with anyone who looks different from them. So when they meet someone who is different, they say things and they do things, or it's just completely normalized to them and they don't understand why it's wrong. And likewise, they don't understand the history behind why it would upset people. It's... um. Gosh, I mean, this is a subject that could get me on such a tangent. I, I had a, um, <laughs> I have language partners uh, in, in Korea. And I remember when George Floyd was killed, um, they, the world was hearing about the protests going on here in America. And they were protesting across the globe too. And I remember one of my Korean friends messaged me on Kakao Talk. And so she said to me, why, why are people so angry? Like, I, I understand that he was killed and I understand that it was bad, but it seems like there's more to this anger than we're seeing. And it occurred to me, she didn't know about the history. She didn't understand. So I had her watch the 13th. I had her watch the document, the um, documentary, the 13th. And she messaged me crying. She said to me, this is America right now? I said, yes, ma'am. And that was a moment of racial literacy and gaining racial literacy and gaining that awareness that I, I didn't even think about that people from different backgrounds really just don't have that knowledge. They don't have that context. So racial literacy is really having that context and having that, um, I guess you could say like a bank of things where you know what to do and what not to do. Um, because a lot of families um, across different races, they sometimes don't have these conversations about race. Some of them say, oh, well, you know, just don't see color. Colorblindness is a dangerous concept because that just means you don't see people struggle. Um, some people, all they talk about is race. So when they interact with someone else, they can smile to their face. And when they turn away, they, they have this hatred in their heart and this anger. Do you understand? So it's, it, there's, there's many different phases to racial literacy, but does that clarify? Does that give you a general idea? Yeah. I mean, what's going through my mind is so many things is racial literacy. 
so there's a dibs program that I used to run at work. And I'm like, is that racial literacy? Like, is harm reduction training? Is that racial literacy? And I, I would just love to know what the building blocks are, because I know it's not clear cut. And racial literacy does touch all of these things. But I would love to know some of the core building blocks um, and topics that would be taught when we talk about racial literacy. So I mentioned racial gaslighting earlier, and I think that is at the core of it in a way, because one of the worst things to experience, aside from encountering racism, and it just shakes you to your core, um, and sometimes it may not be completely devastating, it just agitates you. It's a chronic agitation over time. The, the second worst thing is to tell somebody about your experience and they say, oh, you're just making that up. You know, it's probably just in your head. No, I, I've never seen that before. So that, that couldn't have happened. That's not real. I've heard people say this. I heard people say this all the time. So, um, and that's a form of racial gaslighting is invalidating people and making them feel like they're crazy, making them question their reality, um, telling them that it's just in their head, that what they're experiencing and what they think they're picking up on is just imagined. And it's not imagined. It's very much real, but it's so covert that like racial gaslighting, you don't even really recognize it when it's happening. Um, like I said, during one of our store trainings, one of my volunteers broke down crying and she said, people will really make you think that you're crazy trying to talk about it and trying to say like, I, you know, I saw the way they interacted with me and some people, they can be so oblivious. They don't see it. Right. Um, so racial gaslighting is one of the core blocks there. Um, understanding the four types of racism. So when we talk about like internal racism, when you, when you, look at your own community and you experience a sense of hatred towards them because of internalized racism, because you've been taught that whiteness and the standard of, of, of like Eurocentric beauty standards are the best and Eurocentric anything is the best, then you hate your own community and you see it as a par. That's internalized racism. Um, interpersonal racism, which, you know, when you talk about hate crimes and you talk about violence, that's that, or even just like a microaggression, sometimes that can be uh, considered uh, in, interpersonal, but microaggressions sometimes stem from structural or institutional racism and institutional is more so the organizations that kind of uphold the policies and the structural is more so um the policies themselves and the history and the culture and the ideology that reflects it so understanding all of the forms of racism those four and how they play into a lack of or the development of racial literacy um another point here is a uh, another important point is conflict and how people respond to that because when you call somebody out and say hey that was a bit insensitive or hey i felt a bit attacked does the person get defensive or do, are they willing to be humble and say i'm sorry whoops i'm sorry i i how, how do i fix that how do i do better or do they say or did they get defensive and say no i didn't do anything wrong because they're so afraid of that conflict or they're afraid of the backlash that they'll get i I can tell you a story about a, a woman um, when we did our, I, I'm just, I'm full of stories. Can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> um, we, the same story exchange. We had a woman um, who, and this was a, a white woman in her forties or fifties. She talked about how she'd come from up North. She moved down South with her family and like her first week in the town, they, the, the town was having some kind of a historical celebration, some kind of a parade. And during the parade, she went into one of the shops and someone came up to her and said, hi, would you like a flag? Would you like a banner? And they said, we have Confederate flags too. Do you want one of those? And she looked at them and she said, Confederate flags? 
Why do you have that? Y'all lost the war. That's not something that you celebrate. Why do you, you know, she said this to them. And then she said to us that she eventually had to leave town. She couldn't stay in the town because of the backlash that she got. Her husband was ostracized. She was ostracized. Her children were bullied at school. She couldn't find work. She couldn't get a nanny because of the backlash that she faced for even speaking up and saying something. So this is a whole other dynamic is people who want to be an ally, but they're afraid because of the reaction that they'll get. So wow. these are all the, some of the, some of the few blocks and it's a, it's a tower that's being built. So it's, it's a couple of bricks. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, first, thank you for telling me that there's four types of racism because I myself know two, <laughs> which is the interpersonal and the, the structural, um, right. Those are like the ones that I hear about the most, but even you bringing up internal racism jogs a lot of things that I've had to encounter growing up. And I can just see how these workshops and the stories really can help to educate people and also allow them to share what their experiences are. And there's so many. And I would love if you could tell me how to maybe respond to, I think, one of the most common defenses to being racist, which is, oh, I didn't mean it that way, or that's not my intention, or like, I, that's not what I meant. Mm. So this comment is a very interesting one, because oftentimes, and this is a point that I actually realized I missed, conscious and unconscious bias. Sometimes, People say things and it is so internalized that they think it's okay. It is so unconscious that they don't even realize how it sounds until someone reacts to them. And then there are the people who know exactly what they're doing and it was very deliberate and they kind of use this covert like, oh, I'm just kidding. You know, I well, no, you, you don't take me seriously. Like, oh no, that wasn't no harm, no foul. You didn't take it personal, right? Um, there's two reactions, there's two responses. Um, those are two responses you tend to get. When someone does something and they say they don't mean to, quite frankly, I'm the kind of person who likes to ask people to put their money where their mouth is. And I say, okay, well then let's have a talk real quickly. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm going to like pull out a chair and pull out a pamphlet and say, okay, here's your lesson for the day. But I would, I would challenge a person and say, well, um, if you didn't mean to, I would be happy to have a conversation with you about like why that was wrong and where we can go from there in terms of like, okay, let's go out and let's grab lunch. And did you bring it up casually and say, you know, when you said this, you know, there's a history of this. So when you say this, it, it, it feeds back into this history and blah, blah, blah. Like, I mean, now I used to work in the classroom. So teacher mode for me is kind of normal. And I realized that not everyone would be inclined to do that. Um, simply saying like, Hey, that was offensive. And they say, I didn't mean to, well, your pain is still valid even if they didn't mean to, if they didn't intend to, your pain is still valid. And you say, I understand that. I, I'm okay. I understand. Fine. Maybe you didn't have bad intentions, but that really hurt. I'd appreciate it if you don't say that again, or I appreciate it if you'd stop and assert that right there, assert that boundary, let them know. Yes. Intention was good, but yes, my feelings are also valid. So let's move forward from here and make sure we respect that line that has been drawn. Yeah, I think that's great. And I, I definitely feel myself almost just think about the scenarios I've been in where I just didn't know how to respond and it would have been so useful um, and so helpful to just have uh, a space where I can first express myself and then learn about like how to respond or like what 
what's actually happening? Why am I uncomfortable? Like, why can't I put words to it? So first of all, I love, you know, the response that you're able to give me and also what fire is doing to help in these scenarios. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I feel like you've shared so much wisdom here today. And if a listener can just take one piece of wisdom away with them, I would love if you could share that with us. One piece of wisdom. Oh boy. This is one of those trick questions. Like when people say, what's your favorite movie? And you have like 15. So you're like, wait, let me pull out the list. (laughs) Um, Oh boy. So one piece of wisdom that I would offer is that your perspective is not the end all be all. And that part of being an adult who is able to adapt and grow is one who is able to learn and unlearn. We all have moments where we respond badly to things. We all have moments where we freeze and we don't know how to respond. And neither of them has to be a source of shame for anybody. What matters is that you're willing to learn and unlearn, correct and move forward. And that mentality is at the heart of what most people will have to have to be able to confront racial trauma and racial literacy. Because it's like I said, it's an ongoing process and it, it will always require some trial and error, making some mistakes and learning. Um, I'll end with one more story <laughs> before we, um, I had a, we had our first intern the last year, um, this past year, I should say. And I remember um, he was a white male um, in his early twenties living in New York. And I remember teaching him about Uh, confederate revisionism because up north they didn't teach them that the daughters of the confederacy were literally changing students textbooks and policing the books that were in students libraries and making the wording of textbooks to uh kind of praise the south as fallen heroes and say that it wasn't about slavery even though um very specific historical documents list the word slavery like 50 to like 200 different times um daughters of the confederacy literally sought to revise history and how it was told and that is why to this day we have problems with people feeling comfortable with the confederate flag and they say it's heritage not hate they were the ones who were responsible for rephrasing it that way and he read the articles that I gave him and he completely missed the point. And he was like, well, the daughters of the Confederacy were just trying to preserve their culture and their history. And I just, I like listened to him. And of course we were on the phone and I was just doing this, like rubbing my temples as he was talking. I was just like, no, he missed the point. But then I had to go and find more articles and I I had him read more. And I said, okay, I didn't attack him. I didn't say, what do you mean? You know, I just said, okay gave him like three more articles to read. And I said, we'll follow back up in a couple of days. And he must have texted me at like 9.46 PM at night. And he said to me, oh my gosh, I finally get it. I realize I missed the point. They have been revising history. And so a lot of people have like a miss. And it, it took him time, but he he got it. And that, you know what? He said to me, I am so sorry. I don't know how I missed this. I don't know how I didn't get that. I said, it's okay. What matters is that you had the mindset to remain open and learn and unlearn and correct. That is what is key. I love that piece of nugget. And yeah, I, I think it's really important for people to like you said, not be shameful of I have caused harm, like everyone has caused harm. And you know, like, if we just take the steps to acknowledge it, we can all be in a much better place. And I love that you brought up that story as well. Because I think media reparations is becoming a huge thing and something 
everyone's talking about now because history is and has always been written by the victors. And, you know, there's always another side to that story or many other sides. And so I think, you know, there's this movie on Netflix called Sea Beast. It's a kid's movie. Have you watched it? No, I haven't. It's so good, but it it's basically about that. <laughs> I won't ruin it for you. Um, but it is so good, honestly, for a kid's movie. You could write a dissertation on it, honestly. And it is truly a portrayal of our society and I'm sure many other countries society. So yeah, that's a, that's a recommendation for, for listeners and for you as well. Um, (laughs) um, But thank you so, so much. I would love if you can go ahead and reiterate um, fires, you know, where we can find y'all, what we can do to help and yeah. How do we get connected with fire? Sure, sure. So if you guys look up our Instagram account, F-I-E-R, Atlanta, A-T-L-A-N-T-A, if you look that up on Instagram, there's no spaces, there's no underscores between that, you'll see our profile. And there we actually have our link tree in our bio. And when you click on that, you have all of our platforms that you can connect with across Patreon. Um, You can also uh, donate. Um, You can visit our website. You can take our racial experience survey that we also have. Um, We use that to collect data and and kind of come up with the next discussion topics um, based on people's uh, lived experience. So uh, definitely visit us on Instagram. Definitely visit us on Facebook. And on Facebook, you just type in F-I-E-R Atlanta, um, and that will also pop up as well. But Instagram is definitely our main platform. We have TikTok. We're working on TikTok. We're trying, you know, TikTok kind of just goes over my head. I'm trying to like learn like how to put little transitions in and everything. So (laughs) Instagram will bring you everything. (laughs) And our website as well, um, uh, F-I-E-R Atlanta.org is also where you can learn more about our organization as a whole. So Awesome. Well, I can't wait to see the TikTok and thank you so, so much. I've learned so much today and I'm definitely going to have to poke around and sign up for some workshops. Thank you. Thank you for having me and, and thank you for allowing me to share. And I, I, you know, I'm going to hold you to that now. I'm going to be looking in the audience to Look see if I see me. you. <laughs> thank you so much. It was so lovely meeting you. No problem. Likewise. Pleasure was mine. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your friends. For more information, head to our website at whatgivesproject.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode.